IQs just drop sharply while I was away? Did IQs just drop? Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? You are listening to the Franchise Guys podcast, the in-depth examination of each installment of a film franchise. And of course, at this point, we have begun our second season with Alien, the franchise that has spawned numerous excellent films. And one of the very best is our topic today, which is Aliens, the second film. If you missed our Alien show, you should double back and catch that first And this season, we're also going to cross-pollinate the franchise with the Predator franchise, which ultimately did, of course, intersect with Aliens for a couple of more forgettable films. But uh, hopefully we'll mine some goodness out of that. I am John Evans, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Michael T. Kuchek and Vikram Wheat. Vic, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, John. Excited to to have sprung ahead this morning. Yeah, yeah, I love this. Uh, we're doing this uh, podcast on the morning where the clocks move forward an hour. We get an extra hour of daylight, and frankly, next to Christmas, this is my favorite day of the year. I love that. I love that extra hour of daylight. So, uh, Mike, how are you doing today? I am excellent. I am bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Outstanding, sir. Well, uh, let's get right into it. The 1986 classic helmed by James Cameron, Aliens. We always traditionally start with kind of our first experience with it. Mike, what do you recall about watching this movie for the first time when you were a wee lad? (laughs) This is another one where I had friends who I'd seen it first. And going to school every day was an endless litany of, dude, oh my God, wow. It's the most amazing thing ever. Ah, I was like, oh, little impressed. Ah. And uh, I, I forgot exactly what finally got my parents to drag me off to the theater. I, I think that was actually one of the first instances in which I got dropped off at the theater to see it with friends. I'll interject like, there that my 11th birthday party was watching this movie with my friends. Right. So it was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 was the first time I was allowed to just hang out at the movie theater with my friends. But like Aliens uh, was definitely kind of in that first couple. So, yeah, it was a formative experience on multiple levels. Vic, how about for you? Again, with Alien, this feels like a movie that's been in my life so long, I can't remember a time when I hadn't seen it. Um, (laughs) You've always been the caretaker. I've always been the caretaker, yeah. (laughs) I've always been an Aliens fan. Watching it last night with our, our mutual friend, Amy, I reminisced on the fact that I do have this very vivid memory of being young. I'm... I I couldn't tell you how old, but let's say seven, maybe. My parents had gotten it on VHS. Of course, I was too young for them to watch it, although those rules got very lax very, very quickly after that. I remember coming out in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and seeing Ripley carrying Newt through the space station as things were exploding around them and really just standing there for a second being like, what the hell is that? It's it's amazing how sort of burned into my memory that was so much so, but I didn't make the connection until many years later that that snippet of visual that I saw that had this, this sort of affected me so profoundly was in fact the movie Aliens. Uh, I, I don't remember when I made that connection, but at some point I sort of went, oh, that's what they were watching. Huh. Either that or their porn knockoff. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, well, there was a porn knockoff or two in my not-quite-adult teenage imagination after this film. I don't know. I thought it was, uh... You know, well, Ripley is not super hot in this movie, but there's just sort of a the overall air of cool, you know, sexy, powerful women in this film. Vasquez certainly is hot. You know, it has a certain prurient imagination quality, even if there's almost no skin in this one. But uh, that's kind of taken me off the track. I was just going to say I was much younger. Obviously, I was 11 when I first saw the movie. My sister was going to horse camp and my parents... <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> We were dropping her off at some stables where she was going to be for maybe just a weekend or something. But, you know, she was going to spend the night and groom horses and ride horses and things like that when she was about eight. And on the way back from this place, which was, you know, relatively remote, my parents were just like, hey, you want to go to a movie? And it was aliens. And I was terrified. And, you know, I just remember riding back in the car, afraid that a xenomorph, a face hugger would be in the footwell, the shadowy footwell of the car. And it would spring out of the shadows onto my face. But I, I loved this film so intensely that by a little bit later on, it was a big hit. So it stayed in the theaters for a long time. I planned my whole birthday party around taking my friends to it. And it remained a film that I watched over and over and over on home video. I think I've seen this film more times than any other film. And if I had to pick my favorite movie of all time, uh, this is it, guys. This is overall my favorite movie of all time. So it's near and dear to me but you're always learning new things about the film as you study it and I've kind of focused most of my prep for this on researching it and uh, you know it, it's interesting to try to perceive it as it was at the time when James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd were basically nobodies taking over this already somewhat storied potential franchise in the sense that the first film was a big hit and Ridley Scott was a revered filmmaker and it made Sigourney Weaver a star and this really looked like on paper it was going to be kind of a lame cash grab sequel and no one really gave James Cameron a lot of credit because the Terminator when he was hired to write the script kind of during uh, a delay in the production of the Terminator because Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing Conan the Destroyer because he was contractually obligated and it delayed the Terminator so that's when he took a lot of coke and uh, stayed up really late at night and wrote this script it's a great script but a lot of the production took place or all of it in England and the British crew did not even want to see the Terminator and it hadn't come out in the UK yet and everyone treated him like he was just some you know Roger Corman hack and it made for a very difficult production process and one of the things that really shocked me about reading up on this movie was that James Horner basically didn't finish the score until like a week before the movie came out and he ended up getting an Academy Award nomination for it. So, so much greatness came out of a really fraught production, a rushed production, and the budget was $18 million. The more I look into this, the more I'm amazed that this is such a great film. I mean, I was struck actually watching it this is the vastly superior film to Alien, uh, which is which is sort of astonishing to say because you you never think of a sequel as being superior. I even thought while we were watching this about the there's a discussion in, I think it's Scream 2, about whether, for some reason they're talking about this in a classroom, about whether a sequel can ever be better than the original in that silly sort of meta way. Mike, please, we don't have to go off on the Scream tangent. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
when it, you know they they wind up settling on the Godfather two as a, as an example of a superior uh, sequel, which you can sort of take or leave. But they does somebody does say aliens, and Jamie Kennedy says no way. Ridley Scott rules, and while Ridley Scott does rule, he's wrong. Aliens is a better is a better movie. The characters are better. The arcs are better. It is not, I suppose, as scary. I think as Alien. I mean, because what we talked about last week, what Alien has going for it is the suspense of discovery. Every twist in that. That script revolves around learning something new about the alien with of course the alien bursting out of John Hurt's chest being the the ultimate holy shit where did that come from twist we don't you don't have that luxury with this film and yet somehow it becomes a better distillation of the potential of that film you wouldn't you wouldn't think that just adding more aliens would make such a difference in terms of the the story and everything else but I think I mean alien is a haunted house film in space aliens is just an entirely different beast it is its own thing uh I, I don't think there's anything quite like it well this is a good segue to uh that topic which is mike mentioned last time that he prefers alien mike has your opinion changed did you watch the film again this time i watched aliens again last night and i would say that i have seen this movie enough times that you, you start remembering watching it rather than actually watching watching it if that makes sense i've seen it dozens of times and it's like okay here's a Part and okay, here's that line, and da 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 da. And I never quite fall into that kind of half lazy mental space when I watch the original Alien. I'm still always engaged in every scene of that film. And I, I realize that this is intensely subjective. There's no actual objective argument to be made because they're both amazing, extremely well made films. I, it really comes down to, I, I, in my own preference, is that whole cloth haunted, bizarre feel to the first film. I hesitate to say that Cameron is standing on the shoulders of the first movie because obviously he's a man of prodigious imagination. I mean, you know, the original Terminator is one of my favorite films of all time. He not only took a sequel, but he made it bigger and stronger and, and kind of its own thing. You know, before this, he did Piranha 2, you know, whereas the first Piranha is a little bit more of a, you know, it's a Jaws knockoff. It's a suspense thriller. The second one is a little more action-y. The, the stakes are bigger. There's more Piranhas and now they can fly. Anything is to be said about Aliens. It is one of the most influential films of our generation. I would say, especially in terms of action cinema, Aliens is equal to Die Hard and just pure influence on action and thriller cinema. Yeah. There, there's no other stronger set of blueprints. You can look at dozens and dozens and dozens of movies that are taking their cues from Aliens. Absolutely, and, and what Ripley represents as a feminist icon and a action hero par excellence. I mean, there's no doubt that while we've had other badass females, including Ripley in the first movie, I think this one is really the best synthesis where she's the maternal energy and the feminine core of that is not compromised. She's not simply playing a male character, you know, and being a woman carrying out the exact same dialogue and actions. She's a uniquely feminine character at the same time. So I think that she just sort of represents, not in an overly idealized way, because she's still flawed in some respects and vulnerable and frail, but she represents kind of a true heroine for people to look up to and see what's capable, what they could themselves be capable of, of being at a time, you know, in the mid 80s where that was somewhat, you know, gender roles were obviously a lot more calcified at that point. But it's funny that she referred to herself, Sigourney Weaver re referred to her character here 
as Rambina at the time. Right. And you know, there's some there's some truth to that as well. I actually have a thought that I want to build on that, if I may. I think that in some ways, Aliens is one of the films from the 80s that was kind of starting to talk about Vietnam. And I think that it's similar in some ways to the Walter Hill classic, Southern Comfort. And I've read interviews with Walter Hill in which, the, you know, that movie was very much a microcosm of Vietnam. It's the idea that we have American soldiers and they're going into a wilderness scenario and they have the better guns, the better technology, but they're basically cut off and left for dead and they're chewed apart by the locals who know the terrain better and use more primitive tactics to, to eat them alive. We could almost say that it's a little bit of a template for what we see in Aliens, in which the Space Marines land and they're rough and tough and they've got all these cool guns and they've got this badass attitude and they go into a situation that they don't totally understand and they're left to their own devices, they're cut off with no help and their guns ultimately become meaningless and they're chewed apart by the locals who know the terrain better and are more given to uh, other situation. But between Southern Comfort, which is 1981, and Aliens, which is 1986, we have Rambo First Blood Part 2. Interestingly enough, in both First Blood and First Blood Part 2, you guys will recall what Rambo does is he is actually the guy who becomes part of the wilderness. He's the guy who's coming out of a hidden scenario and grabbing people from the shadows, hauling them off, screaming to their demises. You know, he's kind of a one-man xenomorph. I see what, what she means. She's uh, on the poster. She's a strong figure with a gun in her hand and, and a steely look in her eye, like Stallone. So I, I get where she's going with that. But if we're going to talk about the character's functions, uh, you know, not, not quite an easy juxtaposition. Ladies and gentlemen, aliens as an allegory for Vietnam. This is what you come to the franchise guys for. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, 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 and it took... I, I, Mike, I say that, I, I actually, I thoroughly agree. I mean, it's a, a fascinating point. I'm not, I'm not saying that in a, in a mocking sort of way. It's only yeah. that I never thought of that, and it's actually quite interesting. Well, you guys, I, I, I can't believe, I'm actually gonna break this to both of you, I believe. Mike, you just came up with that on your own, right? You didn't do that, any research about uh, this film? The extent of my research was I pulled up IMDb about four minutes ago to see what year Southern Comfort came out, and that was 1981. Okay. Unbelievably, David Geiler, the producer of this film, was pitching the project just Alien 2, you know, before Cameron even came on, mm -hmm. as Southern Comfort meets, because of the Walter Hill connection, you know, he and uh, Walter Hill were collaborators. He may have even worked on Southern Comfort as um, Southern Comfort meets... You could easily call it Southern Comfort in space, but... You to the fact that I have the IMDb page directly in front of me, yes, David Geller's name is right there. It's Michael okay. Kane, Walter Hill, and David Geller. Great. Who co-wrote and produced Southern Comfort. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Okay, it was David Geiler envisioned this as Southern Comfort meets The Magnificent Seven. That hmm. was something else that you don't really think of at all. But yes, bringing a team together of badasses to accomplish a mission, that is sort of in the DNA of this story template. But the Vietnam thing was extremely conscious, right down to the point that the dropship is kind of a combination of a Huey and a Harrier. It's meant to evoke in its design a lot of the helicopter used in the Vietnam War. In general, that was exactly what James Cameron was trying to do with the overpowered, overconfident soldiers getting bogged down in a swampy quagmire under, you know, technologically advanced, but completely vicious, desperate opponents would just overwhelm them. Yeah, it's very much allegory on Vietnam. So yeah, it's definitely an intentional commentary on the Vietnam War 
and sort of American hubris and getting ourselves into situations that we're going to regret later. And obviously the lessons of the Vietnam War and aliens were not remembered because we immediately got into similar military quagmires in the years that followed. On top of that, the other reason that Alien as a franchise kind of dovetails perfectly with Predator, to my understanding, it was a props gag in Predator 2 where, you know, the dude's just kind of got an alien skull hanging there in the trophy room at the very end. And it's like, wow, dude, what if he actually fought? And then, like, that starts showing up in comic books and la la la. But it's, it's still there in the DNA of both franchises because in Predator, the first movie, exactly what happens is we have a bunch of rough, tough, big dudes and they have the giant guns and they're super trained and they're like the toughest guys in the entire world and they go into the jungle and they get their asses handed to them. And interestingly enough, instead of a group of, you know, a larger group of technologically underfinanced creatures using claws and teeth and whatnot, it's one guy. It's basically they're fighting the alien version of Rambo. He's got even better weapons. He's got even better stuff. He's combines the technology with being at home in his environment. The second Aliens movie and the first Predator movies are, are very similar in that we take the best that America has to offer and they go into a wilderness and they get their asses handed to them. That's a good point, actually. There are a lot of parallels. I'm not sure we want to get too far into it, but no. I, uh, it just occurs to me that the sort of the character arcs for, say, Dylan and Bert do sort of overlap as well. Yes, which is, I mean, I, can we take a second and just talk about Paul Reiser in this movie? Yeah. Because that is, we were trying to figure this out last night. I think this came between my two dads and Mad About You. Is that correct? I don't know. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, my two dads you think i want that in my google history <laughs> john i i was concerned i was of you as a you know i'm mad about you scholar so i'm really disappointed <laughs> the only thing i can immediately say about helen hunt is uh she has a good rain-drenched blouse in as good as it gets sequence but that's all i can say about helen hunt right now um uh, so the, wait, wait, wait. So I'm I'm wrong about that. He did Aliens in '86. My two dads in '87. So if you think about, I mean, the, the association we have with Paul Reiser of this kind of nebbishy, sort of family-friendly, interesting guy, somebody somehow saw him playing Burke in this movie and then thought, we should put this guy in a sitcom as like a loving dad to a you know to a teenage girl. Uh, I think he was a stand-up comic. I'm sure. I'm I'm sure I'm, I mean, I'm sure he was. But I'm saying mm -hmm. it's a. I think a great piece of casting, sort of against type, because he is. I mean, we all throw back and forth the uh, it was a bad call Ripley it was a bad call and I had forgotten until watching it this time how much of a just an absolute piece of shit he is uh, I mean the scene when he locks Ripley and Newt into the room with the two face huggers with the goal of implanting them you know and then she recounts well, you know well, his plan must have been to kill the colonial marines on the way back that's as, as sleazy as anything, <laughs> as anything a human being could do in a movie um <laughs> But uh, he's boy, he's really he's. I don't know. It's just great. It's just a great performance. It gives you a bad guy within the group besides the aliens, which you really do sort of need. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we don't have Ash in this one because you know obviously Bishop is the polar opposite of Ash. So the role of the company stooge and plant amongst our heroes is ably played by this guy. Paul Reiser has that energy that initially is likable and affable and you know youthful and you just kind of immediately 
like this guy, or at least, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. That's what makes his betrayal so much more pernicious, is that he's not superficially this bureaucrat, worriedly, even when he recounts the numbers or the, the price tag associated with this installation, he's, we're starting to get the measure of him at that point, but he still doesn't deliver the line in this sort of uptight, prissy kind of way. He's not a cliche or a stereotype, and it makes the character a lot more slippery, which works to his advantage as a character, and of course it works to the advantage of the film. Vic, you bring up this piece of casting whiplash with Paul Reiser as an actor, I think. Uh, another analogy would be Kurtwood Smith going from Clarence Boddicker and Robocop to uh, the kindly suburban dad in that 70s show. And uh, <laughs> Robocop is also reminiscent in terms of its corporate culture, where um, Miguel Ferrer and Dick Jones, they don't actually give one single shit about the people whose lives they're just throwing into the mix. It really is all Even about cops it. in Robocop's case, a la, you know, Burke wanting to kill the Marines, they're all expendable. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, it's their job to go get killed. One thing that Aliens refuses to answer, and I don't think that it needs to or should, is the question that I carry from the first Alien is, does the Wayland yutani Corporation know about the alien when they send the Nostromo to land on there, or is this what like What did a, you know and when did you know it? Yeah, it's yeah. like, a, or, or is this like a happy accident for, for the corporation? It is seems this, like Burke kind of does this on his own in a way that the whole thing is kind of forgotten after 57 years and he sort of you know digs up some research listens to her testimony is like well you know maybe we should check it out I don't think that colony is an accident in the slightest but I, they I never went looking for it until he sent them the colonists yeah the colonists didn't go looking for the ship until Ripley comes back 57 years later so like in those intervening 57 years the company must have been like eh, well I guess we just lost that whole ship whatever like they never sent another ship out to check out that distress signal. It's my understanding that the colony is on the same planet where they found the architect. Yeah, right? yeah, but yeah. that almost feels like a coincidence because I don't think that is, dude. That is not at all. They don't. Okay, but Mike, this is what I'm saying. Yeah, they put the colony down there, however many years ago. The people are all doing colony stuff. Yep. It is not until she comes out of hypersleep and then Burke sends the order to the colonists that anyone goes looking for the alien ship. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. But yeah, still, it's like there's so many fucking planets in the galaxy. It's like, why exactly that one? You know what I mean? Now, it's like John, I'm going to I'm gonna offer a, a counter-argument to that. We watched the director's cut of the film last night, and there is, in the director's cut, the scene when you see Newt's family has been ordered to go check out this quadrant of the planet, and one guy's going, well, like, you know, this guy doesn't know why why, why, why are we being sent up there? And the other guy says, look, every week I get an order that says, go check out this quadrant of the thing. If I ask why, you know what they tell me? Don't ask. So that's why I send them out there. So I wonder if they'd been looking for this ship all along. But if you have to search a whole planet and it's a, a fairly inhospitable planet, uh, have they just been checking it out quadrant by quadrant and it isn't until she wakes up that Burke suddenly knows where to look? Yeah, she wakes 
up and she's like, we, we landed in this quadrant. And Burke goes, oh, shit, found it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the whole time they sent these colonists literally beating the bushes out there and probably under some hoked up story that they're mining, you know, whatever XYZ mineral that there might be on that planet. But it's really yeah. every human being sent to this planet is by the Whaling Nutani Corporation to get impregnated by aliens so the weapons division can bring them back so they can turn aliens into biological warfare weapons. Well, I want to get into that because that's the next topic that really interests me is the weapons division and what exactly they plan to do with this. But to tie a bow on this aspect of it, what drew the original Nostromo out to that particular spot, those coordinates, was this distress signal. So I guess you guys are positing that the distress signal ended up petering out and by the time they could send a colony out there, they could no longer locate exactly where to land because they didn't have a problem finding the ship in the first movie. It's a, a little minor. I wonder if the distress signal just stopped after the right. ship was breached or something like that. But it's like, I give you what you're saying. I, I think that in the first movie, it was probably a happy accident in which... No, no they landed not... within walking distance of that ship. Yeah, I, I'm talking about the corporation finding the alien eggs in the vastness of space. But that's not true either, because if you recall, Ash was replaced at the last second, and that might be a coincidence, oh. or I don't think it was. I think that the corporation had some idea what was there and they were just like hey these space truckers are going by let's dump them over there but at yeah, the same time, I guess my overarching point is I don't feel like it was a huge priority over those 57 years but maybe it was just literally that they lost the ability to find this needle in the haystack as you guys are saying right. but long story short what I haven't ever really seen and yeah I haven't dug into comic books or anything like that but this whole weapons division you know using this thing as a as a means of a method of war suggests to me that there's a war and in none of these films do you get the feeling that there's a war happening I don't really even know what the company intends to do with it I mean you think logically that what you would do is you would fly over an enemy base or an enemy city and you dump all these eggs in there and let the aliens run rampant in a city or a military installation or, or whatever that would be the most immediate and easy way to weaponize this. What do you guys think about what the company would actually be doing with this? And would they sell it back to the military or what would happen with this technology? I do find that it's interesting that 57 years later, the Xenomorph is still considered such a fucking dangerous thing that the weapons division is still really interested in getting a sample of this thing. We want to be able to shoot aliens at people because that would be the worst thing ever. When I was re-watching the first movie, it occurred to me that Ash is very respectful of the alien because it's perfect. I think that in the first and second movies, what we have is a meeting of the two apex species within the galaxy. The xenomorphs are the apex of evolutionary, biological evolution, if that makes sense. They're indestructible. They're almost indestructible. They're almost impossible to kill. They're like the most deadly creatures in the world. They're incredibly blah. adaptable. Right. Whereas humans have no fur or armor or claws or teeth in a one-on-one fight. Too. Yeah, but what we have is tool use, and that's what makes us an apex species, is we have tool use. When the two species meet in both the first and the second movies, humanity only loses or wins depending on our tool use. And if Mother doesn't work on our side, if our android betrays us, if the weapons that, you know, in watches like the space truckers and the Nostromo keep, you know, whatever problem that they have, they have the means to, like, cobble together flamethrowers or a motion detector. Like, they just build this shit. Well, you know I, mean, I mean, I think the metaphor is our human 
human ingenuity is our ability to gin things up and how we adapt is not through our DNA transforming itself with the body of the host that we carry on with. Instead, our method is very different from the aliens, but we make great adversaries for each other. What will eventually happen is we'll figure out the tools yeah. that tame this thing. And we and, and even her using the power loader is a great representation of that. Absolutely. And the corporation, its immediate thought is how can we turn this alien into a tool? How can we put it into a bullet that we can sell and shoot at people in some way? And, like it uh, would be an unholy thing to see what the Weyland Utani Corporation would actually do. Well, I mean, I, I, I think species. that's what everyone in the entire world thought that Aliens 3 was going to be. And, you know, we, we'll, we'll get to that one. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I think these first movies of the aliens meeting humanity and vice versa, it's, it's kind of like uh, cave people meeting lions. For a really long time, we're going to be scared of these things until flash forward about 200 years from now. And Ripley's going to wake up out of another cryo sleep. And children are going to be walking around with like stuffed xenomorphs and going to the zoo. And there's going to be a xenomorph behind glass, <laughs> you know, lazily pawing at the bulletproof thing. And I would love to see the domesticated xenomorph. A lion is still a dangerous thing, but for the most part, they're in zoos, they're tamed. We make animated cartoons in which they're the talking heroes. You know, I get the feeling in that zoo, there wouldn't be a lot of concern about whether or not the animals would mate. They, Just throw a hamster in there. It'll yeah, mate. Yeah, but I, I, you know, the, the, the xenomorph... That's how you domesticate it, John. Yeah, if, if you have it impregnate a hamster, you get little tiny xenomorphs, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think the xenomorph adapts by impregnating whatever hosts are available. You know, humanity adapts by looking at the problem and creating tools to solve that problem. You know, it's like they're, I love it. And, and the tools are not up to snuff, and that's why the first movie is a horror movie and the second movie is an action horror movie, and the rest of them are stuff that happens in movies. But eventually, the alien, the xenomorphs will be tamed. We'll figure out a way to put it into a bullet or put them in the water supply of a colony that's rebelling against the corporation. And, you know, fuck those guys. And when we come in, sweep them all up with our alien tamers and that's it yeah like we'll we'll need the means to like drop some kind of spore or chemical foam or something that neutralizes all the aliens so that we can scoop them up and leave once they've done their damage Eventually, the Space Marines will be the future's version of knights and horseback. Yeah, you know, they, they had their point, but it's one shell of mustard gas later in Sayonara. John, you touched on the idea of why there is a weapons division. What war are they fighting? It's never quite delineated. I, I, what are the Space Marines? I, I, they don't seem to be a government situation. I think that they they're are. They're the colonial Marines. Yeah, we know that. Are they? A, they're like a space federation that, that supplies them and, and helps corporations. Well, there's an interstellar trade commission is the other organization that we hear mentioned and that's sort of like there's an adversarial relationship between that body and the company because Burke is worried about quarantine catching him in the process of this so he's trying to sneak this by them because they would have the best interests of society at heart and meanwhile the company is trying to pull a fast one on them there's no mention of government whatsoever kind of like Robocop what we see is corporations are ruled yeah, the world. for all we know, the colonial marines are um, uh, mercenaries. Yeah, they're mercenaries who work for Whalen Utani. There might be colonial marines that work for other corporations. And well, there the is sort of the jurisdiction issue that comes up in the course of the film. Like this is a military jurisdiction. That's why Hicks ends up being in charge. Um, I gotcha. Huh. 
just to go off some of what Mike was saying, I actually did explore some of the comic book mythology around the Aliens franchise. In this limited series comic book they did called Aliens Music of the Spears, what the writers posit is that the slime that the aliens secrete is actually a very powerful and addictive drug. And so at some point in the distant future, the aliens have come to Earth in the form of smugglers bring them into drug dens. And there's a crack house with with a xenomorph in a cage in the basement. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, for life of me, I don't know how they get it into these little vials or whatever, but I thought that was sort of an interesting direction to go that, yes, you could use it as a weapon, but boy, if you found out you could sell it like crack cocaine, that would get them to Earth even faster. Vic, I don't know if you're aware, but there was actually a follow-up miniseries called Music of the Britney Spears. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that actually crossed my mind as well when he said that. Jesus, really? <laughs> well, I guess, you know what, this was when that comic book was pre-Britney Spears, frighteningly mm, enough. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, we were commenting on the on the slobber last time and what yeah. the purpose of that was, because it's not acidic, so, you know, and everything seems to have some kind of purpose here. Um, well, Mike, didn't you say it like it was just a lube? If we're saying that it's a perfect organism, that every aspect of this being has some apex aspect, sure, yeah, it's weird to say that everything about it is perfectly formed by evolution, but, oh yeah, it slobbers like a fucking rabid St. Bernard because it's really crazy <laughs> it's like what oh the domesticated ones aren't rabid that's right. the secret but you know they're most insect-like in nature and if we we're to look at the insect world if they're secreting something it's usually you know like a mosquito there's a mild anesthetic in its sting so you know it's, it's proboscis so you don't notice it well it does try to keep the host alive you know, yeah. so it really doesn't, and we never really see it for the most part, ripping people apart. Its whole life cycle is based on having its victims be there and ready to be raped and then give birth to bastard spawn. That's the, the whole name of the game. We all know species, everything is oriented around propagation of the species. And this is just a particularly sexually nasty species. And I think that that, again, doubling back to what was so cool about the original DNA of Alien and the concept that the, the writers had, which is that it's so boring. I think somebody said this. It was probably Dan O'Bannon. He's like, an animal that eats you is boring. I eat, they eat, we all eat. It's not, it, A, it, it's been done, and B, it's just sort of natural. Well, to be raped by something is infinitely more horrible. And what these things do is pervert our, our very notion of sex and impregnation and birth so that it perverts all of it into the most nightmarish and horrific vision possible. And you see that in this film very much much as well in that Ripley literally has a nightmare of giving birth to one of these things and she's literally in sort of a hospital room in the same sort of environment that you would expect her to give birth to her own child which of course is thematically of tremendous resonance for the character for reasons we'll get into later if they're not obvious and then that is perverted by this thing bursting out of her pregnant belly in this horrible way that's a, a travesty of of natural childbirth.
kind of keying off of O'Bannon's thought, there is a slightly dull aspect to a lot of physically-minded horror. You're either dead or you're not dead. Far worse to be perverted or possessed or tortured in some way. I mean, it doesn't just catch you and kill you and you kind of scream for a couple of minutes and then you, you just kind of get eaten. It grabs you and hauls you off to be fucked with. Yeah, you're kind of a concubine. It changes what you are and you get tied up and thing goes in you and you get to feel it grow and then when it comes out it kills you. That are they keep you in a larder either for reproduction or food like they're ants or wasps. So it's worse than just be like oh it bit my head off and now I'm dead. You know, it's incredibly I, ghastly of, of a fate. As we see from when they start encountering the tied up colonists it would be a blessing if these things just murdered you. you know, yeah it's like, like it's, every time you see one of these people cocooned whether it's Dallas or Burke or the female colonists what do they tell you kill me, kill me. yeah 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 we're well, not why, super happy about it. <laughs> we get that conversation between Ripley and Hicks where she says you know you're gonna take care of it I don't want to end up like that you know and he says I'll take care of us both so yeah that's definitely horrific I do want to backtrack very quickly just to say number one idea that I had was that the stuff that they secrete the slime or whatever it eventually solidifies into all the weird shit that you get on the walls um, mm -hmm. so that they because remember as they as they they're entering the compound where the colonists are all seem to be gathered. One of them, they look at the walls and they're like, what the hell is that? It's probably like a liquid resin. So Somebody says that word, resin. Exactly. Yeah. So they're creating an environment in which they are perfectly camouflaged. Oh, of yeah. course. That makes so much sense. The other thing I was going to say is just talking about the colonial marines. Hudson says repeatedly something about, oh, is this just another bug hunt? I wonder if the corporation isn't actively searching for aliens. It Ooh. sounds like they've been sent to check for alien life on planets before, and it's just been sort of a wild goose chase. Oh, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world, because not only does he imply that they've had a lot of these, like a snipe hunt, a bug hunt, where it's like this, you know, ridiculous, pointless search for something that doesn't exist is kind of what a snipe hunt means in our own vernacular. The word xenomorph is used, which, by the way, I wanted to mention this earlier. It's not actually a proper name. It's not like they know about this species and they just call it the xenomorph. It's just a very generic term for, a, you know, xeno meaning alien and morph meaning a shape. So it, it's just the generic term that the colonial marines, I think it's uh, Gorman that introduces the word. I think that it's this nebulous mission that they have, that they're usually getting reports of something kind of like this, and they show up and nothing comes of it. On the other hand, there was a decal on the dropship, which you don't really see in the film very clearly. It's called the Bug Stomper or, or something. And it has like this logo of, it's like a bird wearing big combat boots, and it's gonna, you know, it's in a stomping motion with a gun and it's unloading, you know, a clip. And and you kind of get the feeling that this might be a dedicated unit for shit like this. They've just never had a real call. No other alien life is implied in, within the world of this franchise. Yes, like it is. Alien. The Arcturian Poontang. Yep. <laughs> <I was just laughs> <running>. <laughs> 
It doesn't matter. It's Arturian, yeah. whether it's a man or a female. I'm just saying that they're not like, well, this isn't like the two-headed gargle blaster from yeah. Turris. We never see like files of other aliens going by. You know, it's not like Men in Black right. or Star Wars. It's basically like RoboCop in space. John, you actually touched on something. One of the other many things that I love about these first two films, especially at a conceptual level, is the fact that very little is said about them. It's the movie is called Alien, and the second movie is called Aliens, and the creatures themselves are obliquely referred to as xenomorphs. We don't get some kooky alien name with a lot of random apostrophes in it. We, we don't have, like, a big backstory. I'm sure we get into that kind of horseshit in, in the comic books because, I mean, that's what comic books are for. You're correct, by the way. They yeah. do give them a quote-unquote scientific name in, yeah. the, in the comic. Eventually, they would give it Xenomorphus Latinarius kind of name. Correct. Eventually, but horror is built on mystery. If it's like when they show up, oh, these are just space lions. We know exactly how to handle these. No, we don't know anything about them. We just call them aliens. Like, they're a living shadow. They're a mystery that rises up out of the darkness and grabs you and hauls you off screaming. The less you know, the more terrified you are. Absolutely. But it also kind of reflects the venality and idiocy of the humanity and the government in general as depicted in these films. Ripley, of course, being the lone voice of good sense and courage and sanity who's railing against them in that scene with the suits at the beginning of Aliens where yeah. everyone is just this stupid, closed-minded, bureaucratic pencil pusher and she's just not getting through on a basic level of common sense. It kind of is, is cynical. This whole franchise is extremely cynical about who's actually making decisions and why. And the incompetence in this film is many-layered, beginning with just Gorman being in charge of it. We could debate endlessly, as we have already, like, what did they know and what didn't they know but they put a green never seen action lieutenant in charge of this they don't properly brief the soldiers he's like all right you better read everything by 0800 or something <laughs> while they're supposed to be sleeping they might read ripley's report about what she encountered so they're so unprepared for it that again it's kind of a comment on vietnam and iraq especially iraq really even though of course that's impossible chronologically the idea that with improper deductions made, like, oh, well, forget the Sunni and Shiites. We'll be greeted as heroes when we topple Saddam Hussein. And we just go in there and, of course, it blows up in our face. But we're just greedy for oil in that case. And in this case, we're greedy for the xenomorph, the money that can make Carter J. Burke. The Colonial Marines don't really take this gig too seriously. I mean, they're... Even Ripley they're, senses that right away. Even though they're very tough and they've known each other for a long time, long enough to have this snappy rapport about them, it does feel like they're more creatures of training. They mention past missions, but mostly in terms of goofing around with dumbass Colonials who yeah. they hold in contempt. It's just another bug hunt. They're like well-trained, relatively well-paid mercenaries who keep going on these weird, dumb missions. They're mostly just going through their training, and that's why it's fine to be headed up by some dude who's only been on a dropship once. Well, they're <laughs> even dismayed by that, though. They roll their eyes and are like, oh, crap. You know, when he reveals that he's only had 27, however many, simulated combat drops. Right. They have dropped many, many times, but every time it's just another bug hunt. They're on the field a lot, but they've never met anything like this before. Agreed. No one has. There's a certain amount of sense, though. Gorman, watching at this time, the Gorman character was one of the things I really paid attention to and appreciated. If these are just bug hunts, you wouldn't put your most experienced soldier on it. 
fuck. We're just gonna drop down there. We're gonna we're gonna run around in circles for a little bit. We're gonna find the colonist satellite is down, and everybody's gonna get back on their ship. But I also think it draws an interesting battle line, and I think this is something that you probably see in the military a lot between the grunts and the officers. Yeah. That the officers came out of military academy and has been trained and everything else. He gets to be in charge. The grunts are just the enlisted guys who have been there for however long doing this. Uneducated, um, probably, yeah, enlisted at 18 because they couldn't get into college. You know, if you're looking at the Vietnam analogy, it holds up. Yeah. By the way, though, another reason they might put Gorman in there, if, you know, you're thinking insidiously with the company point of view, they know that they want Burke to really be in charge. So they want to have an inexperienced, easily manipulated military command so that Burke can make sure that things go the way that uh, he wants them to. They're not going to send in anybody who's too, too valuable. Right. Well, and, right. and Burke really loses where, where he thinks start to fall apart for him is once Hicks takes over because Hicks is an experienced soldier. Yeah. It's yeah, after Gorman gets knocked unconscious that his judgment starts to, to come into question. I did just want to point out, too, though, and Mike, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts about this, but one of the things to me that makes this feel like a superior film to Alien is that you have this arc with Gorman that really starts the moment that he confuses Hudson and Hicks. That that's the moment that you go, oh, shit. Not only is this guy inexperienced, but he hasn't even bothered to learn people's names. Like, of course, they, they kind of resent him. It paints exactly the picture of an entitled officer pretending to know what he's doing that really gets redeemed in that scene with Vasquez uh, when they blow each other up, when they blow themselves up as as a sacrifice. Even then he gets called an asshole is the last thing that he ever hears. (laughs) But he does. But the way that, A, I think amongst grunts, that's probably as much of a compliment as you can pay. Oh, he's earned her grudging respect by that Exactly. And the way that they sort of clutch their hands together there's a close-up of his eyes, a close-up of hers. That close-up of his eyes, he's not panicked. He's scared, but he's not, I don't know. He He's one of them at that point. Exactly. He's with them. He arrives at that decision with a level of bravery and courage, yes, that makes him respected by her. It's an arc in a supporting character that you never get with Parker or Alien. It gives the supporting characters more of an emotional investment, I think, than we get with them in Alien. This is a much richer and more ambitious piece of writing. Yeah. I mean, there's just no question that the scope and scale of the film and the amount of attention it pays to character arc and theme, it's just, there's so much more going on in this film than in the first one. I should also point out it's a much longer film, too. Yes. It's like two and a half hours, this thing, isn't it? Uh, I believe the original theatrical cut was not that long. I'll have to look. Two hours and 37 minutes. Say again? The director's cut was two hours and 37 minutes. I don't know how long the... the You know, this is one of those weird, random cases where I don't prefer the director's cut. Me either. I I think it screws up the pacing of the film. Well, and it's so on the... I mean, that's what was astonishing to me watching it last night. It's so on the nose. Everything that got cut was just hammering home stuff that you you were able to pick up without it. Well, Uh famously, Galen Hurd came to Cameron and he was really struggling... I believe with the original preliminary director's cut, 
the pace was completely off and she literally just said why don't you cut what ended up getting cut out for the most part he's like holy shit yeah that's it that's how you get this roller coaster ride on rails that the theatrical film ended up being which is part of the reason I love the movie so much is because the pacing is extraordinary you completely lose that with the director's cut I mean I like it as a curiosity piece to fill in some gaps but when I watch the film at this point I do not watch the director's cut you know, again our friend Amy has seen this film nearly as many times as I have. So we're truly able to pick out like, hey, that line's not in there. <laughs> that line's not in the original cut. That shot's not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. Almost none of it added anything to the film. I mean, the one thing that's debatable is whether or not knowing for a fact that she had a daughter who has died in the in intervening years, interestingly, of cancer. In the script, Burke says, and this is actually a nice foreshadowing of Burke's character as a human being, his integrity or lack thereof. He says, yeah, she died cancer i guess we haven't kicked that one yet we haven't beat that one yet <laughs> yeah i mean that does kind of explain how someone in, in this day and age would die at age 66 it would be cancer but that directly informs ripley's relationship with newt but again do you really need that to do these sort of motherhood juxtapositions that we do between ripley and the queen or giving the empty ripley of the beginning of the film a purpose an investment in life that she didn't have at the beginning of the film but she does with this surrogate daughter and they've both lost everyone in their lives i mean we don't need to know the specifics of Ripley's life before she boarded the Nostromo to know that she's lost everyone that she ever knew. And obviously Newt has lost everyone that she ever knew. So why we need to underline that, I don't know. Well, not only that, to introduce that element now when there's no hint of it in the first film. Right. If I had a daughter waiting for me back home, I would not go back for the fucking cat. You know, dude, that crossed my <laughs> mind too. Like, I feel like that directly undermines... Yeah. that choice because I thought the exact same thing that if you are worried about your daughter you do not give a crap about the cat off that if we imagine her as a very career driven person she's someone who's willing to go to take these gigs that take you into space for years you know, um, none of those characters reference families back home I mean I really believe you're right that to have that line of work you are not that type of person you're not a family person you're an orphan you're a divorcee and that's why they bicker so much about their shares because it's, that's all they've got in life yeah. is to do this gig get their shares blow it <laughs> Go right back on another gig. But it gives us a hint of vulnerability with the character in the first movie. They're all prison. very lonely people in that film. Yeah. The first I, I, film. They're basically characters on like an oil rig or on a really long... And, and it see, resembles an oil rig. The ship itself resembles an oil rig. Yeah. Kind of circling back around to something that you brought up, Vic, the supporting cast and, and these characters as a whole. One of the things I love about Alien and Aliens is the fact that the heroes are... They're working class heroes. They're blue collar heroes the characters are in other movies they would be the extras the grunts the hoi polloi the uh the yes sir no sirs functionaries in the background they're the crew they're not the cast they are the people who are on the front lines doing the dirty work the stuff that isn't fun to do they're going on long missions out into space lonely just a, a chunk of the share and, and some porno they... magazines yeah or else they're grunts they're soldiers they, they form these kind of miniature family bonds amongst themselves as 
as people do when they're part of a team, part of a crew. Friendships become very important to each other. The characters who fail, the villains are corporate stooge back in the office. The faceless voice from corporate headquarters saying, well, fuck you, we don't care. I, you know, we, we care more about the ore than we care about you because you're infinitely replaceable. These are the adventures of how replaceable people doing shitty jobs become heroes. Yeah, it's a very populist thing. I'm going to exactly. just mentioning the supporting characters just because I stumbled across this a few minutes ago and it blew my mind. Do you realize that the actor who played Drake is the same guy who played Boggs the Rapist in The Shawshank Redemption? I did not know that. Mark Ralston? Yeah. Wow. A long list of credits, but that one in particular, I was like, as soon as I saw it, holy shit, that is the same. That's fantastic. That's another one of those relationships, the way they set up Vasquez and Drake, so that you get Vasquez, her sort of fury at Drake getting killed and everything else. Just another marvelous, subtle little thing in, in the script. Well, they created a lot of camaraderie between the actors by bringing all of those guys, like the main soldiers with the exception of Hicks, together for two weeks of intensive training and rehearsal together, mm -hmm. where they basically worked with military guys to get all of the salutes and the formations and everything to be how they clear the stairwells to become second nature so that it would be as natural as possible. And also, of course, to build the bonds amongst themselves and develop their own characters. Like they basically, all the graffiti and everything on their uniforms, they would conceive it and then like an artist would actually, you know, draw it on or whatever. So they bonded big time. And I think that shows in the performances. Of course, it worked out very well to have Ripley and Gorman and Burke. Those actors were not around. I mean, Sigourney Weaver was doing Half Moon Street and apparently it kept going, you know, over long and they kept having to extend the production so she didn't show up on the set of Aliens until like three days after she finished that movie and right before they started production on this one. That outsider status, again, as it kind of did in the first film, I think worked to the benefit of this film because she was to be sort of viewed with a little bit of suspicion and didn't blend in with the other characters. And yet the way that she assumes command among them is startlingly seamless. Uh, yeah. Once the once the shit hits the fan and she runs that car in there and saves everybody, when they come back in, Gorman's unconscious. She's the one who points out to Burke that Hicks technically is in charge, but Hicks starts listening to her. And by the, you know, within 10 minutes, she's the one giving orders and stuff. It's a, really is an amazing performance. A richly deserved Academy Award nomination. In the episode that we did on the first one, you, you had mentioned that the rest of the cast were very experienced actors, and she was considered to be the less experienced performer, and they gave her a hard time in the course of that until it comes to a head in that scene where she's like, I'm in charge! And again, we have a replication of that dynamic in which Sigourney Weaver and Ripley both are a little bit outsider-type people. You it's know? funny, though, because the dynamics of that estrangement are completely the opposite, because by this point she'd been in Ghostbusters and several other films and was considered a movie star and most of these actors that we're talking about Jeanette Goldstein and Mark Ralston and Bill Paxton they were more or less nobodies so they were kind of overawed by her and that was part of the distance between them because she was in a different weight class. Either way whether she's punching up or punching down she's still separate from the rest of the crew and cast at the same time and you know that kind of gives both films dynamic energy, tension
attention to the setup that we lacked throughout the rest of the franchise. By the way, uh, the reason Hicks wasn't there was that James Ramar of the Warriors and other films was originally cast and there on set for a few days playing Hicks in the same wardrobe and everything. And then apparently he got busted for marijuana possession or something like that. And Gail Ann Hurd called Michael Bean on like a Friday night and was like, is your passport in order? Can you show up and do this movie on Monday? And so he had zero prep. That's fantastic. <laughs> I wonder if he slept on the plane. <laughs> He's very good, but I noticed, I guess I, I appreciated Bill Paxton more. I mean, Michael Bean is terrific. Is that, how, how did you pronounce it, John? Bean? I don't know, actually, to be honest. All right, I should look that up. I, I, I think well, I Bean Michael sounds Bean. wrong. I, didn't have a, I don't have a good reason for that. He gives what is a statically courageous good guy performance right from that moment when he's asleep on the plane during the drop and the juxtaposition of him and Gorman and you sort of get, well, this is an experienced soldier. He's calm. He does the right thing almost at every turn. Whereas Bill Paxton is so willing to be unlikable and kind of a pussy. It's a much braver performance. My wife asked me while we were watching it, why does James Cameron keep coming back to Bill Paxton? And it occurred to me that that is kind of the common thread if you look at this and his character in True Lies it's a willingness to just be sort of pathetic He's good at underlying the chewy middle to the blustery bully guy. The character is like this dumb frat boy, and when the shit hits the fan, you know, he falls apart. It's bluster to hide his internal weakness. We'll talk a lot more about Hudson and Bill Paxton's performance next time. We're going to split this one into two parts. Certainly have enough to say about it to do so. And I'd like to really get a little more granular and work through the film scene by scene next time. So hope you guys are up for that. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.